Uh, hello, this is Dan Byman. And this is Cynthia Miller-Idris. Um, Dan, I am delighted to be in conversation with you because, you know, we are approaching the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and this is something you've been um, such an expert on in this country. And I, you know, would just love to take this opportunity to pick your brain a little and hear what are your thoughts as we approach, you know, the 20-year anniversary, two decades, and um, are we sort of where you thought we'd be as we think about global terrorism issues and, and what's changed? That's a great and a really big question. It's a little, <laughs> I'll say, disturbing to me that it has been 20 years. It's hard to imagine. Yeah. Uh, so um, let me start by talking about some of the good news and then I'll quickly some of the bad news. So what I will say is from a U.S. homeland point of view, uh, there are different ways to count, but slightly over 100 Americans have died from jihadist-linked terrorism since 9-11. That's far fewer than I at least expected in the immediate aftermath of the attacks. I was part of the belief that things were going to get a lot worse. Um, but at the same time, the spread of these groups around the world and their persistence and the emergence of new organizations like the Islamic State and their presence in civil wars throughout the Muslim world is, is deeply upsetting and disturbing. And those are kind of two of the big, I'll say, extremes that I think have emerged. Um, I know that you've been thinking about terrorism in completely different contexts. Um, can you please just tell me like, how 9-11 shaped your research? And... Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, I would say that 9-11, I mean, I work, my you know, historically I've worked on the far right, and 9-11 I think has really... Um, had a huge impact on the growth of the far right over the last 20 years for in a variety of ways. So one is that it, uh, you know, it really helped um, confirm and fuel the Islamophobia industry, which which uh, evolved into a broader anti-immigrant conspiracy industry around a great replacement. So the idea that, um, you know, that that Muslims were orchestrating a replacement of European civilizations or of white civilizations through immigration and demographic change, um, which, you know, is a lot of what inspired in its own version, uh, terrorist attacks in Oslo and then later directly in Christchurch and El, in El Paso. Um, and so we've seen that, uh, you know, that kind of growth fueled by post 9-11 context. And then in addition, the kind of sort of global war on terrorism uh, and the subsequent refugee crisis and, you know, all, a lot of those, a lot of things that unfolded after 9-11 have been um, kind of inadvertent um, fuel for both the ideology and the conditions that allowed far-right extremism to thrive, even as the attention of most counterterrorism officials globally was very heavily trained um, on Islamist and religious uh, international terrorism. So, um, so I, I think a lot about it in terms of, you know, would things look different um, if 9-11 hadn't happened? You know, in what ways is the current growth that we're experiencing uh, in terms of the most lethal and uh, most pressing threats to the homeland a, a reaction and a backlash in certain ways? And I don't know if that's something that you've thought about as well. Um, so I certainly see it where you have, you know, real questions for Muslim communities around the world of, you know, how they're treated in the West and how they're viewed and do they belong. And there's mm -hmm. been some serious work on what a scholar in Europe called suspect communities, communities mm -hmm. where they're kind of, they see themselves as victims of security services. And I, I definitely think that logic applies here. Um, let, let me ask you, you know, your book, which for those listening to us, if you haven't read Hate in the Homeland, just 
stop listening now and just go out. Thanks, <laughs> Dan. But uh, you know, with that in mind, um, one of the things the U.S. has done well in the post-9/11 environment is global cooperation against the jihadist movements. Um, how would you rate that on the far right? Is there global cooperation? I would say it's a scramble right now, and meaning that I think that what we have is emergent global cooperation, um, but it's really nascent and relatively new. So, you know, you know, I will regularly speak to to groups and agencies globally who say this is the first briefing they've done on the, on the far right or on the right wing extremist or terrorist threat. Um, and I think that, you know, five years from now, that looks very different than what it does look like in 2019, 2020, 2021. But it surprises me still that that's, that's sort of where we are, is that there hasn't been that kind of cross-national or cross-collaborative cooperation at, in great depth. I mean, of course, there are always exceptions to that. But that's really changing. I think that's changing, especially after Christchurch. Um, and, uh, and, and is that, is your experience that those ties you know, do you think there are ways in which those ties that were forged through that post 9-11 context could be useful in combating the far right globally? Um, as you know better than anyone, there are big differences, but, but in a general sense, yes. Um, just the ability to share data, to be able to collect overseas, um, to have pressure on social media companies or financial institutions when foreign governments list terrorist organizations, there's a lot of things that can be done globally that help domestically. And you know, it's not gonna be a, a complete copy, but that said, I think there'll be a lot of um, benefits to greater international cooperation. Well, that's a positive uh, take to end in our last eight seconds. So I'm, uh, you and I are gonna follow up on this conversation later, but thank, thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you. <laughs>